Howdy, y'all. This is the History Bows Podcast. I'm Morgan. I'm Lexi. We're coming at you recording on St. Patty's Day. Yeah. Now I can be like, hype. I'm sorry for next episode, guys. I'm like, I don't know what to say because I want to like, I want to save my like St. Patty's Day hype for this episode because yes. I am hype. I'm in a fucking, I mean, I'm, I'm very sparkly. Um. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, St. Patty's Day. So you'll be hearing this the Wednesday after St. Patty's Day, but yeah, we are excited. Yeah. We're very excited. We take the day off. We can tell you this again in a week. Yeah. Um, uh, we take the day off every year. We bar hop uh, mm-hmm. while safely lifting around. Yes, safely uh, is key. Make good choices. Drink lots of water. Um, but we are Don't very excited to yeah. party hardy this St. Patty's Day. Yeah, Tampa has a good celebration. Um, they, I can't have saw something I wanted to say the last episode. I was like, no, I gotta save it. It's usually so fucking crowded. Well, but, it's it's a Friday, so maybe more people took it off than last yeah. year, and we well, celebrate on a Thursday. So, yeah, so last year we celebrated on a Thursday. Tampa, typically the Saturday around, whatever the closest Saturday yeah. is to St. Patrick's Day, they have their Rivero Green Festival, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about in my story. Um, mm-hmm. But they, so it was originally planned for Saturday, mm-hmm. and then last minute the weather was looking kind of gross for Saturday. So they changed it to today. So I'm hoping less people will be there because it's in the area where we will be pub crawling mm-hmm. around. I object to the word gross when referring to I think it's supposed to be rain. lightning heavy also. If it was just rain, I think it would have been fine. It's going to be lightning tomorrow? I think so. No shit. Well, I assume that's why they canceled it. You know, I'm making gross assumptions. <laughs> you just using the word gross a lot. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> That was for you. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I guess, uh, yeah, so we're going to have the River Green. They die are, uh, the Hillsborough River Green, um, only in St. Pete, uh, not St. Pete, in the downtown area. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll talk about it. Yeah. And we're going to go down there. We're going to have a good time. We're going to drink water. We're going to meet my son. Um, for one, for, for only lunch. The lunch part. And then he's going home because he cannot drink. Yeah. And we want to, we want to project good role modeling onto him. And so he won't be seeing me. After pub crawling all day. Or Aunt Lexi. <laughs> or Aunt Lexi. After pub crawling all day. So after we responsibly, after drinking water, pub crawl all day. And then so. Uber to where we need to be. Well, well, well not Lyft Uber, we'll us. be lifting. Uh, but yes. And then we, we don't drive. Don't drink and drive, guys. Yeah. It sucks. It's the law. It's the law, but also you could kill someone. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's DUIs yourself, are expensive you know? and Ooh, uh, manslaughter ex- charges more expensive. Ooh, they're expensive. So, oh, they're expensive to get DUI. So let's <laughs> just not play that game. What was it like five grand or something to have the thing installed on your car so you can drive that you uh, have to always blow clean? I just know about the attorney representation costs of that. Yeah, because uh, I lot. hear Michael's quotes and Oof. um, they expensive. Nah, it's a no from me. So I'm gonna be just you know Uber. However expensive your Uber is, it is cheaper than a DUI by a lot. And. No one is likely to die unless your Uber driver is in an accident, which is wild. Damn. <laughs> hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully not, they were uh, also me, celebrating St. Patrick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. so we're going to be doing some St. Patrick's Day themed stories today. Um, uh, very excited. Very mm-hmm. excited for mine. Um, I'm excited to hear it. I'm excited for yours as well. I'm just freaking thrilled about these stories. Um, so. Uh, for drinks, we've just, we've, we've got some Irish beer, man. Yeah, in Irish beer glasses. Oh, we do! Uh, so we are drinking Harp, uh, which is made by the Guinness factory, mm-hmm. but it's their lager. Uh, nice, light, refreshing. Nice, light, yes. And we're drinking these out of our Guinness glasses mm-hmm. uh, that came from the brew house in Dublin. Mm-hmm. The St. James Gate dis- uh, Brewery. So. City. Oh, yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Mm-mm-mm. Harp is one of my favorites. It's so light. It's refreshing. It's very good. It's what you wish Bud Heavy was. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Um, okay, so let's crack into it, guys. Um, I'm going first. And today, because it's St. Patrick's Day, I get to talk about fun things. Yeah. No Our podcast. Well, my, mine gets a little well, sad. Mine gets a little sad. I mean, like, it's like, sprinkled in. But, like, <laughs> namely, I'm going to be doing Little Irish woes. Folklore. Um, and I know it's a history podcast, but folklore is a very important part that shapes many cultures and histories, and Ireland is no exception. So without further further ado, let's get started. Um, 
So I got an illustrated map for Christmas from Puka Printhouse. It's on Etsy. Um, and it's of mythological creatures from Ireland. And man, there were some interesting names on there. <laughs> the ones that I had never heard of before. I'm usually pretty up to date in my mythology, but not all of them. So starting with Petticoat Loose. That is their name. I don't know, man. I don't even know why. In the story, it doesn't even explain why. Uh, that's just their name. Petticoat Loose. Um, as with many folktales, the story of Petticoat Loose was used to make children behave. If they didn't, Petticoat Loose would get them. Um, the legend, that's right. I like her. Right? Uh, the legend of Petticoat Loose is from the south of Ireland, from Cork to Waterford, and it goes like this. Uh, Patrick Flynn's wife was in labor near Ballingiri on a cold night when it seemed that the wind had its own fingers for rattling the latch of the door. But the man had no choice but to set out onto the black road and look for a nurse for his wife. Rounding a bend, he was shocked to a halt by the ghastly sight of a woman with hair floating as though it was underwater. It's dark. actually just me with that head. Girl, that's what I was thinking when I wrote this. Not you, of me, <laughs> of me. Uh, dark, I was like, wow, this is a really rude description of me. Uh, dark hollows beneath her eyes and a deadly gleam in her empty eyes. Although no light shone on her, a glimmer seemed to come from under her clothes, which I guess this is you because you're very pale. I don't Wow. <laughs> damn. You're not wrong, but damn. <laughs> Like, she looked dirty. I'm like, it's me. Um, <laughs> Stop. From her clothes. You're just tan. I know. Which were from an older style. The apparition hissed and made to reach for the man's throat, but he screamed, wait! He said, I beg of you, don't kill me, for you'll have three murders on you then. Only give me till tomorrow and I'll return by myself. The figure advanced no further and he ran for it. The next day, the man went to meet the parish priest, who was much concerned for the man's wife, but his manner changed quickly when he heard what had happened. He called Patrick a fool, and thinking of a way to punish, he was thinking of a way to punish him when Patrick left. He was like, I'm not going to stick around for this. Um, Patrick came upon an old man who noticed Patrick look miserable, and he asked him what was wrong. After hearing the whole tale top to bottom, the old man nodded and told Patrick to talk to the curate, which is like another type of priest religious dude from the church. I had to look that up. It's like, what does he curate? Paintings? I don't know. But I guess he's like another kind of priest. Um, and he listened to his story and said to Patrick, don't worry about a thing. I'll make it right as rain. With that. And then Bob Marley came in playing. Yep. <laughs> With that, he gave Patrick a full jar of holy water and, he's, uh, and said he'd accompany him to meet the spirit later on. Night fell as foul and dark as the night before. And the two proceeded up the road. The priest gave Patrick his instructions. Make a ring of holy water. If she comes through that, make another. Should the second ring fail, try a third, and I'll be nearby. <laughs> and so Patrick did just that, but the evil shade walked straight through the first ring. Making another, she walked through that one as well. As she came through the third, out from the bushes left the priest, and he threw his stole over the top of her. The stole is like the scarf-like thing that the religious <laughs> people wear. Petticoat Lou shrieked like a hundred cats and told the priest to take it off, for it was a terrible weight on her. The priest said he would, if she told him how she'd been damned. The spirit agreed and said that she was damned for abusing her father. Lies, said the priest. Now speak to me the truth or you'll endure that weight forever. She acquiesced and hissed, I was damned for killing my three children. The priest nodded, knowing her nature now, and said, You devil, that's what damned you. I'll send you to the ocean's deeps for seven for seven years for your penance that seems like not long enough yeah i know she screamed i'll burn the ships i'll drown everyone that passes over the priest said you'll do no such thing for i'll weigh you down to the bottom and so it was the priest sent her to the deepest part of the ocean for seven years the waited Bermuda triangle <laughs> right waited where she could do no harm but when her time was up she came back and was at it again terrifying travelers and sometimes killing them and now she's soggy and mad and her fingers are all pretty <laughs> right? oh no so the priest sent her off for good and to this day that's where she remains doing her penance at the bottom of the ocean in the bermuda triangle yeah. all the way from ireland <laughs> yeah very far away <laughs> uh for the next story we're bringing up a folktale superstar in the gaelic lang language she's known as the band c but she's also known as the Banshee. And for you, this is where Ethot said beans, uh, because B-E-A-N is pronounced ban. 
So I didn't see, is there an I or an E? Or... There's an I after it. I didn't see that. <laughs> I saw B-E-A-N-S. Beans. And that or, yeah. says beans. <laughs> so the band's, yeah, so the band C. All right, or Banshee. Um, or, right. Yep, or the Banshee. Um, it would be difficult to find anyone in Ireland who hasn't heard of her, and she's known the world over, and many cultures have their own name for her. The term Banshee has been in common usage since the 17th century, though accounts of the super, supernatural death messenger go as far back as 1380. The name translates loosely to Woman of the Fairy Mound, or Fairy Woman. The Banshee is a female spirit, or Death Omen, uh, though she's not particularly malevolent herself. When you hear her, it's said you'll hear screaming, wailing, shrieking, or keening. By hearing her, it means there will soon be a death in the family. If you see her, it means she's warning you of your own death. Descriptions of her vary. Sometimes she has long, streaming hair and wears a gray cloak over a green dress, and her eyes are red from constant weeping. She may be dressed in white with red hair and a ghostly complexion. According to Lady Wilde in her book Legends, Charms, and Superstitions of Ireland, the size of the banshee is another physical feature that differs between regional accounts. Though some accounts of her standing unnaturally tall are recorded, the majority of tales that describe her height state that the banshee's stature is short, anywhere from one foot to four feet. Very her, small. I know, right? It's her, just Kelly coming out. That's what I'm saying. Her exceptional shortness is oft, uh, often goes <laughs> along uh, the, <laughs> the description of her being an old woman, though it may also be intended to emphasize her as a fairy creature. She may also be seen at night as a shrouded woman, crouched beneath the trees, lamenting uh, with a veiled face, or flying past in the moonlight, crying bitterly. And the cry of this spirit is mournful beyond all all other sounds on earth and heralds the certain death of some member of the family whenever it is heard in the silence of the night. In Irish mythology, the Cleana is a queen of the Banshees from the Tuatadanan, um Cleana of Caraclina is the, uh, is the potent Banshee that rules as queen over the fairy women of the hills of South Munster. I did do my homework on pronunciation here, but you guys will have to bear with me. Um, next up in Irish folklore is one of my favorites, the puka. According to the legend, the puka is a deft trickster and shapeshifter. So sneaky. <laughs> Capable of assuming a variety of terrifying or pleasing forms. It can take a human form, but will often have animal features, such as an ear or tails. Two ears, probably. Um, One big-ass <laughs> ear. As an animal, the puka will most commonly appear as a horse, cat, rabbit, raven, fox, wolf, goat, goblin, or dog. So all of the animals. Mm -hmm. But no matter what shape the puka takes, its fur is almost always dark. It commonly takes the form of a sleek black horse with a flowing mane and luminescent golden eyes. Black they beauty! Right? If a human is enticed onto the puka's back, it's been known to give them a wild ride. However, unlike, <laughs> un right? unlike the Kelpie, the puka will do its rider no real harm. However, according to some folklorists, the only man to ever ride the puka was Brian Boru, High King of Ireland, by using a special bridle incorporating three hairs from the puka's tail. The puka has the power of human speech and has been known to give advice and lead people away from harm. Though the puka enjoys confusing and often terrifying humans, it's considered to be benevolent. An example of the puka as a benevolent or protective entity comes in tales where the creature intervenes before a terrible accident or before the person is about to happen upon a malevolence, fairy, or spirit. In several of the regional variants of the stories, um, the puka is acting as a guardian. The puka identifies itself to a bewildered human, and this is particularly noteworthy because it's a contrast to the lore where many other folkloric beings um, who guard their identities and names from humans. So they'll be like, hey, dude, I'm the puka. What's up? You need to turn around. <laughs> <laughs> um, no Rumpelstiltskin games here. No. Um, so the puka should not be confused with the Kelpie or the Eskushka, um, which translates to water horse. 
The Kelpie live in streams and rivers while... Lots they... very spooky. <laughs> yeah. While the Eshuskia lives in the sea and locks and is known for being the fiercest and most dangerous of the water horses. They both will trick riders onto their, onto their backs. The Kelpie will take its rider and dive into the nearest stream or lake to drown and devour the rider. The Eshuskia rider is safe while inland, but at the nearest sight or smell of water, the creature immediately goes to the deepest part of the loch or ocean with its victim. After the victim is drowned, the Ishuskia tears them apart and devours the entire body, except for the liver, which floats to the surface. They're like, ew, I that's my that. least no favorite part. No one wants organ meat. <laughs> yeah. Um, when both the Kelpie... Like what, with no onions? Right. I shan't. <laughs> no, thank you. When both the Kelpie and the Eshuskia make a run for the water, their skin becomes adhesive, and the rider cannot dismount. The yeah. The Eshuskia is particularly fond of young and beautiful women. Imagine you're, like, riding a horse, and then it's just, it, and, the, and mm -hmm. you're like, why is it sticky? <laughs> right? Ew. I hate it. <laughs> uh, next up, we have the original Headless Horseman himself, the Dunlahan. Also known as a hobgoblin, or as a member of the Unseelie Court. The Dulahan can also be a general term for a headless evil spirit. In folklore... But not nearly headless Nick. No, Because not. he is only nearly headless. Yes. In folklore, neither the Seelie or Unseelie Courts were deemed necessarily good. The Seelie Court could be uh, helpful to humans. It might return favors for gifts or offerings from humans. But if you insulted them, they could be just as likely to make a human pay for it. Um, the Unseelie Court were more likely to be malevolent uh, to humans and would fuck with them just because. Adulahan may be depicted as a headless horseman, stereotypically on a black horse, who carries his own head high in his hand or under his arm. The specter of the Dulahan often appears near a graveyard. A Dulahan is not always a mounted horseman, though. They can also appear as a headless coachman who drives a horse-drawn carriage out of graveyards or, conversely, arrives driving the death coach at a doorstep of a person whose death is coming for them. One legend says that a headless coach would run back and forth from Castle Hyde to a glen beyond the village of Ballyhooley in County Cork. It was said that the coach would visit the houses in succession and whichever occupant dared to open the door would be splashed with a basin of blood by the coachman, which Just is for being very polite. rude. You know, um, it works out well for us millennials. Because <laughs> right, we don't be opening Because I don't answer the door for nobody. Mm -mm. Uh, in addition to having no head, the coach led by the coachman also has no sound. An eyewitness from Connemara said it was only the silent shadow of a coach passing by. And while the Dulahan is thought to have been traditionally male, there have been stories of both male and female Dulahans. In one story, a man riding a horse came across a hooded female who he offered a ride. He intended to get paid for the ride with a kiss from her. Ew. But when she pulled back her hood, he saw that she was a Dulahan. Good. Which is an excellent joke on her part. Good. <laughs> yeah. In Croker's tale, the headless horseman, he described the Dulahan's severed head. And he was kind of mean about it. <laughs> he said, such a head no mortal has ever saw before. It looked like a large cream cheese hung around, <laughs> hung around with black puddings. No speck of color enlivened the ashy paleness of the depressed features. Imagine describing <laughs> me that way. So rude. The skin lay stretched over the unearthly surface, almost like the parchment head of a drum. Two fiery eyes of prodigious circumference, with a strange and irregular motion flashed like meteors. That's just me dancing. So I'm just trying my best. <laughs> In the words of the modern storyteller, Tony Locke of County Mayo, the Dulahan's mouth, full of razor-sharp teeth, forms a grin, reaching the sides of its head. Its massive eyes constantly dart about like flies, and the flesh has required... <laughs> The flesh has acquired the smell, color, and consistency of moldy cheese. Fine, I'll shower more. Which is more. really I'll just, shower more. Are rude. you happy now? It's rude all around. It's disrespectful as hell. The next story isn't long, but when I saw the salmon of knowledge on the map, <laughs> I knew I had to investigate. The salmon of knowledge figures prominently in the boyhood deeds of Fionn which uh, recounts the early ad adventures of Fionn McCool, a famous, a famous Irish hero. In the story, an ordinary salmon, 
It's fucking regular ass salmon. Eat nine hazelnuts that fell into the well of wisdom from nine hazel trees that surrounded the well. By doing this, the salmon gained all the world's knowledge, and the first person to eat the salmon would gain all of the knowledge. The poet Finnegus spent seven years fishing for the salmon. Finally, he caught the salmon and gave the fish to Fionn, his servant, with instructions to cook it, but on no account to eat any of it. Fionn cooked the salmon, turning it over and over, but when he touched the fish with his thumb to see if it was cooked, he burnt his finger on a drop of hot cooking fish fat. Fionn sucked on his burned finger to ease the pain, but little did he know that all the salmon's wisdom had been concentrated into that one drop of fat. When he brought the cooked meal to Finnegus, he saw that the boy's eyes shone with a previously unseen wisdom. Finnegus asked Fionn if he had eaten the salmon, and he was like, um... But what he really said, um, he was like, no, but he explained what happened. Uh, Finnegus realized that Fionn had received the wisdom of the salmon and was like, I guess, have the rest of the fish. Um, and for the rest of his life, Fionn could draw upon the knowledge merely by biting his thumb. The deep knowledge and wisdom gained from the salmon of knowledge allowed Fionn to become the leader of the Fianna, the famed heroes of Irish myth. The next creature is another favorite. The Selkie. I'll keep Yay. it short and sweet for time's sake, but a Selkie is capable of changing from a seal into a human by shedding their seal skin. The mermaid in Irish folklore, sometimes called a marrow, has been regarded as a seal woman in some instances. In a certain collection of lore in County Kerry, there is a tale in Trally that claimed the Lee family was descended from a man who took a mermaid for a wife. She later escaped and joined her seal husband, suggesting that she was of the seal folk kind. There was also the tradition that the Keneally clan of Connemara was descended from seals, and it was taboo for them to kill animals because it would bring bad luck. And since Keneally became a moniker of the animal, many changed their surname to Connolly. It is also mentioned in this connection um, that there is a Ronish or a seal island just outside Guibara, uh, sorry, Guabara Bay, off the western coastline of County Donegal in Ulster. There are a few ways Selkies might be married to a human. They might want to be, but very often the human would hide the Selkie's seal skin so they couldn't change back. In a happier story, there is a tale of a male Selkie who wanted to be married to a human woman, and she was able to find an old Selkie skin and become a Selkie herself. If a selkie skin was hidden from them and they found it, it was said no matter what ties they have on land, their love of the sea would always win, and they would put on their seal coat again and leave whatever life they had on land. No matter what. Hmm. <laughs> and this penultimate story. I was also inspired by the name on the map. What the heck is up with St. Coleman's ducks? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you. In Wexford, Ireland, uh, there's a church called the Old Church of Tem... Mm, the Old Church of Temple Shanbo. It was anciently... The Church of Rochambeau. <laughs> right. Rock, paper, scissors, all that. <laughs> it was anciently called Shambo Coleman from St. Coleman Ophicra, who lived in the 7th century. Near the church is a holy well, which was frequented by pilgrims on St. Coleman's Festival Day. During these olden times, there was a large pond that was supplied from the well where ducks were kept for years and years because apparently St. Coleman loved birds. And these were very special ducks under the saint's protection. The ducks were treated with much respect and they were very tame. The pilgrims liked them very much and the ducks would eat right out of the pilgrims' hands. And the ducks were apparently a pretty agreeable bunch all around. Who doesn't like ducks? <laughs> They're great. That one guy um, in... in uh, in Orlando doesn't like ducks. <laughs> Aww, Legend says, ducks. though, uh, even if someone didn't like these ducks, they were impossible to harm. How do we know this? Because at night, when people went to, get, went to the pond to get cooking water in a pot, sometimes they unknowingly got a duck. <laughs> and they brought the pot home and put it on the fire to boil. And no they one noticed... noticed there was a duck? No. <laughs> they noticed no matter how much wood they stacked under the pot for the fire, the water wouldn't warm up. Eventually, someone looks in the pot and there, swimming happily, is a duck. So the person would hastily carry the duck back to the pond to rejoin their friends, and then the water would boil with no problems. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. And my last story. 
how could I not include the Leucopon, or as they're better known, the Leprechaun? The Leprechaun is said to be a solitary creature whose principal occupation is making and cobbling shoes and who enjoys practical jokes. In McNally's 1888 account, the Leprechaun was not a professional cobbler, but was frequently seen mending his own shoes as he runs about so much he wears them out with great frequency. This is, he claims, the perfect opportunity for a person to capture the Leprechaun, refusing to release him until the Leprechaun gives his captor supernatural wealth. It is stressed that the Leprechaun, though... Um, wait, hang on. It is stressed that the Leprechaun, though some may call it a fairy, is to be clearly distinguished from the good people, or the fairy mounds people. The Leprechaun being solitary is one distinguishing characteristic, but additionally, the Leprechaun is thought to only engage in pranks on the level of mischief, and requiring special uh, caution, but in contrast, the others may carry out deeds more menacing to humans, like kidnapping children. Um, according to William Butler Yeats, the great wealth of leprechauns comes from buried treasure, buried during war times, which the leprechauns have uncovered and appropriated. The leprechauns originally had a different appearance depending on where in Ireland he was found. Prior to the 20th century, it was generally held that the leprechauns were red, not green. According to Yeats, the solitary fairies, like the leprechaun, wear red jackets, whereas the trooping fairies wear green. The universal leprechaun can be described as about three feet high and is dressed in a little red jacket with red breeches buckled at the knee, gray or black stockings, and in the north in Ulster he wore a hat cocked in the style of a century ago over a little old withered face. Again, very weird. Um, around his neck is an Elizabethan ruff and frills of lace were at his wrists. On the wild west coast, where the Atlantic winds bring almost constant rains, he dispenses with the rough and frills and wears a frieze coat over his pretty red suit, so that unless on the lookout for the cocked hat, you might pass a leprechaun on the road and never know that you pass one at all. Except he's three feet tall. You might notice a little bit. Hmm. Um, a leprechaun is often confused with the clearachan, which is a mischievous fairy in Irish folklore, known for his great love of drinking and tendency to haunt breweries, pubs, and wine cellars. He is related to the leprechaun, and this has led some folklorists to suppose that the clearchan is merely a leprechaun on a drinking spree, <laughs> while others regard them as regional variations of the same being. Like the leprechaun, the clearchan is a solitary fairy, encountered alone rather than in groups, and distinct from the trooping fairies. I'd like to close out on an old Irish story that my nana, who is from Ireland, and her brothers used to love to tell there was a story of an of old house lady. <laughs> right in the north of ireland it was on the cliff near this on a cliff near the sea and it was said to be haunted many went to investigate and tried to rid the house of the spirit but they were always scared away so the town sent the constable up to the house for the night like many before him he said he wasn't scared to investigate and to stay the night so he goes to the house and as night falls an icy wind begins outside, and it howls at the door. Soon the constable hears a voice in his ear. It says, there's nobody here but you and me. But the constable goes about his business, and he doesn't pay it any mind. Soon again, he hears the same voice. There's nobody here but you and me. The constable is still unfazed, and he starts to get ready to go to bed for the night, and he starts to unlace his boots when he hears the voice one more time. There's nobody here but you and me. And the constable coolly replies, I and there'll be nobody here but myself when my boots are off. <laughs> and he slept soundly <laughs> through the night. The ghost had departed. And that is my story on old Irish folklore. I love it. Great job. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. So, y'all, for my story today, uh, you know, I, I love doing the history of holidays that we're celebrating because uh, I think it's important to know what you're celebrating. So as we sit here with our harp mm -hmm, in our Guinness mm -hmm, classes, mm -hmm. uh, to quote President Eisenhower and also the Boondock Saints, <laughs> everybody is Irish on St. Patrick's Day. March 17th, corned beef and cabbage, green beer, leprechauns. We know it. We love it. Let's talk about the history of it. <laughs> it is impossible to discuss St. Patrick's Day without first talking about the man himself. What do we know about him? He was Irish. 
He used the shamrock to explain the Holy Trinity. Drove all the snakes out of Ireland. Gardeners and mice everywhere rejoiced. Right? Not so fast. <laughs> For starters, St. Patrick, despite being the patron saint of Ireland, wasn't actually Irish. Uh, he was born in 386 AD or CE, whichever you want to call it, uh, and grew up in a well-to-do family in Wales. I couldn't find anything on his mother, but his father was a Christian deacon and also a Roman tax collector, and his grandfather was a priest. Uh, his name, also, not originally Patrick. It was Maywin Sakat. <laughs> so, you know, we're already starting with the lies. <laughs> And at this point in history, the Roman Empire is starting to fall apart. Uh, the Saxons are raiding the eastern part of Britain, uh, and the Irish are raiding the western part. Mm -hmm. The Irish in particular were known to be fierce raiders and were feared because they would capture and enslave men and women. What a rough part of England to live in yeah. at this time. You got the Vikings on one side, you got the Irish people on the other side. I mean, the English do make up for it. Later, later on yeah because they do be raiding but it, but it did suck <laughs> but uh yeah yeah um, the, the og well i guess these are the og colonizers yeah and england picks that up and runs with it for yeah. years and they're years. like you know what not a bad practice uh the men would be for the enslaved men would be forced to tend herds of sheep and cattle uh women would be forced to become servants and it's on one of these raids supposedly that 16-year-old Sakat is captured and enslaved by marauders who had been dispatched by Ireland's King Neil of the Nine Hostages. He was given to a local chieftain in County Antrim, where he was forced to herd sheep. He was deprived of food and clothing and spent much of his time alone. I've been to Antrim, they got a lot of fucking sheep. Well, apparently there was a herder named Sakat. <laughs> Uh, it's during this time that his faith grows stronger. He prayed up to 100 times a day. That's a lot. And as many times at night. It's a lot. In his short autobiography called Confessio, he said that six years into his captivity, an angel appeared unto him and told him that he would return to his home and then gave him directions to a ship and its shipping schedule, you know, like angels do. Mm -hmm. And then he walked to hundred miles across. he was like wow you look really scary <laughs> read a book yep uh he walked 200 miles across forests and peat bogs to a port assumed to be in wexford uh where he found a cargo ship bound for continental europe it's a long walk it is it's not a big island but it's big enough 200 miles like you just saw some dude who had a lion on one side of his face and you're like damn i gotta get walking <laughs> Well, because he gave you the shipping schedule. Gonna you trust go. him. I got to go. Initially, the captain denied him passage, but the cat prayed, and lo and behold, the captain changed his mind. Upon landing, the ship's crew found themselves wandering for weeks in the wilderness, no food to be found, as you do when you are a professional in the shipping and cargo trade. I was going to say, what the fuck? Where, did they... Where are they going? The men began to mock poor Sakat for his faith, saying, You claim your god is all-powerful, but he can't bring us any food? That seems rude. Uh, he wasn't in charge of steering the ship. That was their job. Sakat told them to turn their hearts to God, because nothing was impossible. And at this moment, God answered his call. A stampede of pigs ran across the path. He had his first converts. And I guess this is a nice story, but it comes from only one source, St. Patrick's own autobiography. Mm. And historian, historians aren't buying it. Roy because Fletch pigs are really hard to catch. <laughs> <laughs> Roy Fletchner, who has a master's and doctorate degree from Oxford University, is a professor at University College Dublin and was a research fellow at Cambridge. So like kind of knows his stuff. Uh, I and, don't know. It sounds like an English hater. <laughs> <laughs> and author of St. Patrick Retold, The Legend of History and Ireland's Patron Saint, has doubts about his time in slavery, saying, The probability that Patrick managed to cross from his alleged place of captivity in Western Ireland. North. North. Yeah. yeah, that's very north. 
back to Britain undetected at a time when transportation was extremely complicated is highly unlikely. Yeah, because I don't even know if the Romans had gotten into their building roads yet. I mean, considering what time this is. Well, no, so know. this is around the fall of the Roman Empire. Right, so. but I, I, know, I don't know much about how much the Romans got into Ireland. I mean, obviously, but, it's right. pretty well documented. We know, it, just from my next story uh, that you guys will hear next week, that there's Roman occupation in Britain, but Ireland, uh, I don't well, remember. Well, and this is 400 years after your right. story. Yeah, so I don't but remember what... It's going on and so but so he claims he went through you know forests and bogs Mm -hmm. and all of this so it sounds like not a lot of roads but in um roman occupied england it would have been Mm -hmm. uh so he thinks the story sus as fuck uh he argues rather than coming to ireland against his will patrick intentionally fled to the island to avoid inheriting his dad's job as the roman tax collector which was becoming an increasingly dangerous and less lucrative job. Fair enough. Also, I was just considering that this guy was like, have you seen the roads in Ireland right now in 2023? Oh, they have great roads. Uh, some of them are great roads. Uh, oh, I don't know. The back like roads. The top end, but. <laughs> the back roads? Oh, those are sketch. Yeah, I was like, have you seen the state of these Their fucking roads? interstate system interstate will system make great. you want to murder everyone in the U.S. Yes, their interstate system, like, the, the, yes, that's great. All of the other roads, I guess, left up to the local regional people, very sketchy. True, um, true, true. And they're like, yeah. And they're and small. Yeah, they're like, yeah, he wasn't, no, he wasn't. He yeah. did not get there that easy. Oh, well, and there are other reasons for this assumption. Patrick was a self-proclaimed wealthy man when he returned from Ireland. Hmm. And at this time... A, he was a fucking slave. But B, Ireland lacked a monetary economy. So, he claimed to be a slave. However, in Ireland, one of the few lucrative jobs that could get you money was slave trading. It's all coming back to me. And Fletchner strongly believes that this was the case. Mm Mm-hmm. The traditional legend was instigated by Patrick himself in the texts he wrote, because this is how he wanted to be remembered, says Yes, I think I read this before now, that he was not in fact a slave. He was the opposite of a slave. slave trader. Mm -hmm. And it's not impossible that he could have been both, but... mm, Unlikely. 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 So Kat returned to his family, who begged him not to leave again. Which, weird if you were captured and enslaved. Less weird if you went out on your own. Mm-hmm. But he claimed his religious visions had returned and presented him with a different plan. He claims to have heard the voice of the Irish. <laughs> All of them. All of them. Begging him to return. Ain't this just like a motherfucker from that island that needs to come over to this island talking to So he goes into formal religious training, is ordained as a deacon in 418, and in 432 is consecrated as a bishop and given the name Patricius. Most people, when they're enslaved, aren't super eager to return to the place they were slaves. Because trauma, you feel me? Yeah. Not slave trading Patrick. No, no. He requests the assignment in Ireland. Start calling him uh, slave trading Patricia, because that sounded closer, honestly, to his name. (laughs) To Patricia's? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He spends his life using all the knowledge he had of Irish language and its customs that he totally learned from his very isolated life (laughs) as a slave, converting and baptizing Druid priests, chieftains, and aristocrats. Aristocrats. I did not just say Aristocats. And I'm lying. Yes, I did. But the snakes that St. Patrick so famously drove out were actually pagans. In many of these instances, the options were to convert, flee, or be killed. That's kind of how Christianity makes its way around. Yeah. I don't know if any of you have watched the new season, not season, but like the new show for Vikings. It's like a few hundred years after the original Vikings took place, and, like, everybody was, like, very pagan. Mm-hmm. That was, like, one of the whole, like, well, one of the characters' the entire personalities. Christianity uh, yeah, was starting to make Yeah, but then it's, like, 
it's very ingrained by that point, right? Because yeah. Devil Hunter gets better, and then Christians become Christian, and people start killing each other. There's still some pagans, but they're all converting. Um, and then, like, the Vikings are going on missions to, like, convert people to Christianity. And now it's making its way through Ireland. Mm-hmm. Christian's gonna Christian. Yep. It is believed that St. Patrick died on March 17th, 461. But the first... Roman Catholic feast day in honor of St. Patrick wouldn't come around until the 10th century. Why the delay? Hmm. Definitely not as a way to convert and assimilate local, we say Celtic, 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 it's whichever. You, you uh, I know. I, I can't know. remember which way is the, I don't, whichever pagans uh, <laughs> who still exist today because Patrick was bad at his fucking job, but who about 200 years later, uh, after his death, had adopted the Germanic pagan celebration of Ostara, the goddess of spring. That's a fun, you guys should celebrate that too. Uh, that is traditionally celebrated on March 20th, mm-hmm. uh, the spring solstice. Mm-hmm. Side note, this is the same celebration where we get Easter, but that is a discussion for another time. Literally Easter, we'll talk about it. Yep. <laughs> Uh, the holiday falls during Lent, which is the Christian observation uh, during the 40 days before Easter, where there is fasting, typically meat is given up, in remembrance of Jesus spending 40 days in the desert fasting. So, you're trying to convert all of these people, you're asking them to fast, but in the middle of it is a gigantic celebration holiday that they have. Mm -hmm. So, totally not the Christian church just trying to give them... Uh, an easy one-off it's interesting when things come back into play and become popularized um well not not even popularized just they were like oh no i'm sorry there's this holiday about this saint you can just roll your festivities in with this we saw it with yeah i was just about to make a commentary on when confederate stuff started becoming really popular again in america and it wasn't right after the Civil War. Oh, It was no. all got built around the 50s, 40s. Yeah. Um, when people were, uh, during Jim Crow, and, like, having a resurgence in that pride. So it's not really erasing history. You no. know what I mean? But. <laughs> this is my commentary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Weird how history repeats sometimes. Yeah. Again, hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, so on St. Patrick's Day, Irish families would typically go to church in the morning And then the prohibitions during Lent would be lifted for the day. Mm -hmm. People were allowed to drink, dance, eat rasher bacon and cabbage. Oh boy, howdy did they. (laughs) And uh, the first St. Patrick's Day parade took place March 17th, 1601. But it didn't happen in Ireland. (laughs) It happened here. That doesn't shock me. In America. In Florida. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Specifically, the Spanish colony of St. Augustine. Hey. The parade was arranged by the local Irish vicar, a.k.a. priest, uh, who had the extremely Irish name of Ricardo Artur. <laughs> I suspect he was just trying to give the Span- Spanish population a hard time. He was just like, fuck you. <laughs> and then everybody's wearing whatever color they were at that point. Red? I don't know. Leprechauns? I don't know. <laughs> They're all just got, yeah, having a great time. Uh-huh. More than 100 years later. In 1772, Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched in New York City on St. Patrick's Day to honor him. And from there, the parades would continue. Irish patriotism among Irish-American immigrants grew and started Irish aid societies, notably the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick. The parades would feature bagpipes. No one ever mentioned that those were originally made popular by Scottish and British armies. Moving right along. And drums! (laughs) Uh, And in 1848, several of the New York-based Irish aid societies united their parades to make the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade. Nowadays, this parade has almost 150,000 participants and 3 million attendees. Similar parades are held in Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Savannah. Up until the mid-19th century, most Irish immigrants were Protestant and middle class. That changed when the potato famine hit Ireland in 1845, and around a million poor and uneducated Irish Catholics poured into America. And they were different. So, of course, the majority of Protestant Americans hated them because racism. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. 
Yeah, right? It's nice. We have just people coming into the country that may be a little different. Yeah, and we just, you know, accept them as they are with all the things that maybe don't look just like us. Weird, huh? <laughs> they did look just like them, though. Y'all right. just had a funny, they just, they they just, just sounded spoke, different. And they're like, oh, they, no, thank you. They had unfamiliar accents and yeah. different religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. They were hated for being Catholic instead of Protestant. Finding work was very hard. Nina job av- advertisements were common, which is no Irish need apply. Which, so I was reading articles about this. Mm-hmm. And I fell down this hole while, mm-hmm. whilst researching. And so you've seen the black and white photos of, you know, no Irish need apply signs mm-hmm. in ads. No Irish, no dogs, all same thing. There, and this was... A researcher from somewhere in fucking Ohio, probably, uh, <laughs> published an article, and people took it as gospel, that, um, so this was an extremely prevalent thing in England at the time, right? Like, the English did not like the Irish. And what? It, <laughs> shocking. Uh, so, but it was extremely prevalent there, but continues. this man alleged that no such uh, instances were found in the United States and there were no court proceedings regarding employment discrimination at this time. And he published this article and it made it into peer reviewed journals, but apparently not reviewed very well. And, uh, <laughs> this had just been accepted as gospel that it was mm-hmm. just a myth passed down for, uh, from generation to generation, uh, in Irish families or Irish immigrant families, um, to kind of, uh, perpetrate victimization among this you know um community yeah this community of people and sorry i don't have any of this written down uh so this girl who actually went to school i forget the name of the school but it's the same middle school as the obamas Mm. went attended Mm. uh so god i hope this isn't going where i think so this girl starts doing her research Uh uh-huh and she finds in one New York paper alone in one year, like mm-hmm. 15 Nina ads. Oh my gosh. And then she researches more and just finds it's just this incredibly pervasive thing. Mm-hmm. And it's from big cities to small towns. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. And it's, you know, she's just going through digitized newspapers and mm-hmm. she's finding all of these. And she's like, what the fuck was this guy talking about? Mm-hmm. And then uh, she finds two uh, court proceedings about employment discrimination among the Irish. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up like refuting this guy's academic paper Mm -hmm. and was like, no, y'all need to fix this. (laughs) Uh, And she had a a teacher who encouraged her to write her own article Uh and she ended up publishing it in high school, like in peer reviewed journals. Super cool. But anyway, real thing that happened. Uh, So as a consequence, economic success was hard to come by for these people. When Irish Americans took to the streets to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, um, instead of it just being, you know, nice parades, they were now portrayed as drunken and violent by the media. It's also around this time that we see corned beef and cabbage become a St. Patrick's Day staple. Poor Irish immigrants couldn't afford the cuts of rasher bacon, but on the Lower East Side of New York, living among Jewish immigrants, they got hip to corned beef. And so it became the standard. These immigrants adapted in other ways, too. Eventually, politically, they realized they had numbers on their side, and they became a voting powerhouse called the Green Machine. Oh, Lord have mercy. It's just the, the sorry, the, the mirrors sometimes that you see in history of, of please go on. <laughs> <laughs> and they became an important swing vote for politicians. And very quickly, oh, St. Patrick's Day parades became a must-attend event if you wanted votes. In 1948, President Harry S. Truman attended the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade, and it was a proud moment for Irish Americans, whose ancestors had to fight to overcome all the prejudice they faced in America. Mm. As immigrants spread out to other cities in the U.S., the cities developed their own traditions. One of these is the annual dying of the Chicago River. It started (laughs) in 1962 when city pollution control workers used dyes to trace illegal sewage discharge and realized the green dye would be a fun way to celebrate the holiday. They released 100 pounds of vegetable dye into the river to keep it green for a week. Nowadays, in effort to reduce the environmental damage, they only release 40 pounds. Although it is widely accepted that Chicago did it first, 
a hotel manager out of Savannah, Georgia, Tom Woolley, claimed to have had a similar idea one year earlier. <laughs> Although his river never actually successfully dyed green. But he says he suggested it to Chicago's mayor, Richard Daly. <laughs> However, here in Tampa, we don't really care who did it first. We're just concerned with doing it best with our local Riffero Green celebration, which is where we're heading when we get done here. Today, people from all over celebrate St. Patrick's Day in the United States, Canada, Australia, Japan, Singapore, and Russia. Surprising no one, the U.S. has the largest celebrations, uh, and here we wear green to celebrate. You'll notice one country lacking in that list that I mentioned, Ireland. (laughs) In Ireland, it was still largely held to be a day of religious observation. Up until the 1970s, Irish law mandated that pubs be closed on March 17th. It wasn't until 1995 that the Irish government began a national campaign to use the interest in St. Patrick's Day to drive tourism and showcase Irish culture to the rest of the world. Corn beef and cabbage for everybody. (laughs) Finally, you might be wondering what leprechauns have to do with St. Patrick's Day. The answer (laughs) is really nothing. Nothing. The Celtic pagans who were around long after St. Patrick, the slave trader who was bad at his job, left. Uh, (laughs) They believed in fairies, tiny men who could use their magical powers for good or evil. A belief that still persists today among a lot of people in Ireland. They're wearing an Elizabethan frill (laughs) frock, and they're wearing red. Just so you know. As we heard, uh, stems loose kind of from the beliefs of fairies, according to local folklore. Uh, They were known for their trickery and protecting their treasure. Uh, But leprechauns, they even have their own holiday, Leprechaun Day, celebrated May 13th. It's rumored, though, that they are especially active on St. Patrick's Day, and you should wear green to avoid being the target of their shenanigans. Oh, they'll think you're part of the trooping fairies. There you go. Instead of... Maybe that's why they leave you alone if you wear green. Maybe, because they'll be like, oh, you're one of us, but like... Not like but not me, because really. I don't hang out with people, but... Yeah, but, you're like, like you're a fine. brethren. You're fine. And I'm very short, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. And that is the history of the very now American holiday, St. <laughs> Patrick's Day, to St. Patrick, the slave trader who was bad at his job. Mm-hmm. I say, I'm glad we fucking bastardized your holiday. <laughs> and to you all, I say, Slancha. Slancha. Let's um, go drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, happy St. Patrick's Day, y'all. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. We're going to go drink. We suggest that if you can safely, and if you're of age, go do so as well. Bye. Bye. Bye.